All right, welcome back. Again, if you have your Bibles, we're in Galatians 4. I'll go ahead and read part of it, and then we'll dive into this last section, verses 21 through 31. So Galatians 4, verse 21, if you're reading along, says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. So stop right there. We'll explain what that means as we go on through the sermon. That gives you a sense of what's coming up. So tracking our way through Galatians, Paul has been talking about the law because there is this group of people who are telling the Galatian believers that it's better, it's more advantageous, it's more mature to follow the Jewish law in terms of having relationship with God, bringing them back under this legal sort of relationship with God that ultimately Paul says is immature, not more mature, and it's more like slavery than it is like freedom. And he's described the law. So, I mean, this is the challenge is if it's not about law, then why did God give the law? What's the purpose of the law? And he's answered some of those questions. He's used a lot of illustrations. Paul uses more legal language in Galatians than any of his other letters. So the law is like a prison guard. The law is like a schoolmaster. Then he discusses being a child versus being a slave. And we've been through all that. Last week, we had this little aside where Paul got real personal with the people of Galatia talking about being courted, not necessarily for their own good. And that's how legalism works. It's not for the good of the people. It's for the good of those trying to convince them. It's like misery loves company. I'm miserable with all these laws and trying to keep all these rules. And I want you to be miserable with me. I want to win you to my side so I can feel better about myself. And Paul presents this very motherly example of how he's sort of experiencing labor pains and labor for them so that Christ can be formed like a baby being formed in the womb, that Christ could be formed in them. So Christianity is less about following rules and more about what's happening inside of me. That's like a woman who's has a baby growing in her womb. Christ is growing. I don't know if that's been your experience. If you can think back to the time you got saved to now, But people say there's something happening inside of me. And sometimes it's hard to explain what that is, but there's a change. There's a change that's happening inside. So now Paul is going to bring us to this final sort of crossing the theological finish line for himself, playing his last theological card. And it's a perfect passage for Mother's Day. I couldn't have picked a better one myself because this passage presents to us two mothers. Their names are Hagar and Sarah. And they represent two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. They represent slavery and freedom. They represent flesh and spirit. So it's a very appropriate Mother's Day message. So verse 21, Paul turns again his attention. He says, tell me, and that's emphatic. That's a command. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, Do you not hear what the law is saying? So he goes back to Genesis. When he says the law, he's speaking of the Torah, the Old Testament, book of Genesis, Abraham, and the story of his two sons. He says, don't you hear, if you really want to be under the law, don't you understand what the law itself 
says about itself, what the Old Testament says about the relationship with God through law versus through faith. And then he says, verse 22, going to give the example. It's written, what says that Abraham had two sons and they kind of connect themselves to Abraham. And that's where the Jews connect. It's It's all about Abraham. It's all about circumcision. It's all about that covenant with God. And Paul reminds them that Abraham had two sons because we tend to think, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and we forget about this son named Ishmael. So Abraham had these two sons. They had different moms. Three different faiths traced their origins to Abraham. The Christians do, the Jews do, and the Muslims do. And we'll talk more about that as we go through the sermon. So you got the Abraham, who's like this big family tree, and it's got this big trunk. Abraham is the trunk of the tree. And then there's this really significant fork in the tree. There's Hagar, this Egyptian slave woman, And there's Sarah, Abraham's wife. So you've got this split in the family tree, slavery on one side versus freedom on the other. And then the free side, the Jewish side, then branches again later on into Christianity through faith in Jesus Christ. But for right now, he's saying, look at the fork in Abraham's family tree. There's not one son, there were two sons. And then he tells us who these two sons are. And they knew the story. The one was by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. It would do you well to go back to Genesis at some point and read chapters 12 on through about 21, 22 gives the story of Abraham and his family and God's call in his life. So he brings us to the attention of the first son, the one by a bondwoman. Abraham, wonderful figure in the Old Testament. He marries this beautiful woman named Sarah. Big problem, though, she's barren. She's infertile. She can't have any kids, which it's a problem for her in that culture. Not a cool thing to not be able to have kids. That was sort of your identity as a woman. But the worst part is, is that God gives Abraham this promise. He says, you know what, Abraham? I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to bless you. And the whole world's going to be blessed by you. You're going to have descendants. They're going to be like the stars of the sky. Your descendants are going to be like the sand of the sea. And Abraham says, okay, God, that's fine. You know, Abraham follows God to the land of Canaan, brings his wife and his nephew Lot with them. That time passes, like 10 years pass. And God confirms his promise to Abraham. I'm going to make you a father of many nations and you're going to have lots of offspring. And Abraham says, okay, time out, God. Like, I don't have any kids. It's kind of hard to have a lot of descendants if I don't have a male son who can carry on the line. So God says, don't worry, you're going to have a son. It's going to be by your own body and I'm going to take care of it. And that's when Abraham starts to get a little impatient with God. And his wife says, hey, hubby, hey, Abe, I'll tell you what. God said, we're going to have children. We're not getting any younger. I'm still infertile. Here's my maid, sir. Here's my slave girl. Why don't you take her as your wife and see what happens? So Abraham shacks up with his wife's slave girl, Hagar, and she does get pregnant. So the problem, the infertility problem was not with Abraham. It was with Sarah. So she gets pregnant. And of course, it was Sarah's idea to do this thing. But then when Hagar gets pregnant, now all these jealousies happen and Sarah's upset. Of course, it's Abraham's fault. 
She makes the decision. She says, Abraham, I want you to do this. Abraham says, okay, if you suggest it, I'll do it. But then when he does it, it's his fault anyway. The guy can't win. So that's how Ishmael is born. It's 10 years. Abraham is 86 when this young guy is born. And I think we talk about like creating Ishmaels in our life. And I think we know when we say that, that Ishmael was born but through the natural processes. Abraham had intimacy with this slave woman and she gets pregnant, has a baby. But this was not God's intention. That was Abraham and Sarah's idea. So we've all given birth, I think, in some ways in our lives to Ishmael's. In other words, we're waiting on God, we're waiting on God, but we're tired of waiting on God. So we say, you know what, God, we know you, you can do it, but we're going to have to give you some help. Evidently, you need help to be faithful, to keep your promises. So you've said you're going to do it, but we're going to pitch in and help you out. And I know by the looks on the faces around here, have you guys ever helped God out? Oh, man. And live to tell the story. I think some of the most traumatic things in my life are times when I I knew God was doing something, but I was getting impatient and I tried to make it work, had my own scheme, had my own plan, going to take care of this. It's my idea and step out ahead of God and find out that those things just don't go well. Whenever my flesh, whenever my ideas get involved, it just doesn't go well. So this is Ishmael, the son of Hagar, And Abraham, she's a slave woman from Egypt, and that's the way the family tree branches one way. And by the way, you inherit your status from your mother. So if your mom is a slave, then the minute you're born, you're born into slavery. And if your mom is a free woman, then the minute you're born, you're born into freedom. So again, all of this goes back not to performance, but to birth. It's all about the nature of your birth. So he was of the bondwoman, was born according to the flesh, the natural way, Abraham and Sarah's planning. And he of the free woman through promise. So this is the difference in these two kids. The difference in the two moms is that now you fast forward. Ishmael is born. 13 years go by. Circumcision. God calls Abraham to circumcise himself and Everybody in his household, including little 13-year-old Ishmael, Abraham's now 99, Sarah's 89, and God calls him to this covenant of circumcision, which, by the way, in Galatia becomes a huge deal for the Judaizers. They're saying to the Gentiles, well, Jesus is fine, but you have to keep the Jewish law, and primarily that includes being circumcised. And you'll see when we get into chapter 5, Paul hits circumcision really heavy. And he sort of starts the ball rolling that way with Ishmael and Isaac. Because remember, there in Genesis, Ishmael at 13 years old, along with everybody else, gets circumcised. Now keep that in mind, because that's going to be handy to know when we move forward. So circumcision happens and God says, oh yeah, by the way, Sarah is going to be the mother of many nations. I mean, kings and nations are going to come from her. And there's going to be a baby born from her own body. And Abraham's like, oh, no, God, that's like, look, here's Ishmael. I mean, he's 13. Can't you just accept him? Can't we just, you know, we've been through this. 
I ain't getting any younger. Our biological clocks are not just ticking, they've stopped ticking. They're not working anymore. We are past the age of childbearing. We are 99 and 89 years old. Let's just take Ishmael, the work of our flesh, and can't you just accept that? And God says, no. He will never accept. He can't accept the works of the flesh because then you get credit. You can say, that's what happens when you create an Ishmael. You say, well, look what I did. Look what we produced. Look at the fruit of my labor, of my ideas. And that will just never do in God's economy. So he says, no, it's going to be Sarah. And Abraham laughs. And his laugh, because Sarah's going to laugh too when she hears about it, but their laughs are different. Abraham laughs like, you know that laugh? Like, oh, no way, God, you are too cool. Like, God, that is amazing what you said. What you promised is so hard to believe. I'm astounded. But then when Sarah hears about it, you know, Abraham and Sarah have the visitors to the tent. Abraham sends for the fatted calf and they have this celebration. And the angels who visited said, look, next year, this time, after the nine months, we're going to come back and your wife's going to have a baby. And Sarah's listening from the other side of the tent curtain and she laughs. But her laugh is like, are you kidding me? I am so old right now. Like, there's no way I'm having a baby. My skin is wrinkly. I ain't getting younger. I am not going through that whole thing. I'm just, things aren't working like they should to produce children. And her laugh is, God, you're crazy. I don't think you can do it. And then the funny part of that story, if you go back and read it, is the angels ask Abraham, hey, why'd Sarah laugh? Then Abraham asked Sarah, why'd you laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. It's really kind of a funny interchange as she's confronted about not trusting God about not believing he could do it. And I'm sure you've never had that problem that there's something in your life where you were saying, you know, I just don't know if God can do it. I don't know if God is faithful. And that's really what all of this boils down to. There are two different worlds you can live in. The world of faith or the world of works. The world of works is filled with fear and obligation, like you can never do enough, like you're always trying harder because you've got to make it happen. If it's going to happen, it is up to you. And the world of faith is filled with peace and tranquility because you know that if it's going to happen, God's going to have to do it because I can't do it. And whatever happens, I mean, I sit here and I look around at the six bodies that I'm looking at, but the 400 chairs. And just think of the ventures of faith in my life and the times where I've just shaken my head, not just about being a pastor, but so many different things where my wife and I have discussed, you know, what are we going to do and how's this going to work? And we've plotted and we've prayed and we've planned. And we said, we, we just need to wait. Have you had that moment where you're like, you know, we just, we're getting anxious and we're feeling like we need to step in and fix this. And we just need to wait. And I can think of, I don't know, four or five different situations in my life where I've failed <laughs> and we've created an Ishmael and then had to deal with the consequences of that. But then those other times, and I've learned a little bit more over the years, I've learned God's faithfulness. And I've learned that if I wait on him, his solution is way better than mine. Because I could have never done it the way he did it. So when God says, no, Sarah's going to have a baby, like there is no way in their own power that they could do it themselves. Like it has to be a miracle or it's not going to happen. So that's the two sons Ishmael, which is a product of the flesh of their work and their decision and their 
power, their abilities, what they're capable of. Then there's the promise, the fruit of what I'm not capable of, but what God is capable of. And that's what always blows my mind. That's what blows our minds. And Paul says, the child of the free woman was born through promise. You have to trust God. I mean, at some point in your life, for every Christian, this is where life really begins. You can show up at church and you can say you trust God, but when you can relax, when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. When you've been working so hard all your life to produce whatever it is that happens, then you sit back and say, I'm just going to follow God. Then watch what he can do. When you can trust him, that's when things really start to fly. And Paul says in verse 24, that these things are symbolic, literally an allegory. An allegory, the word in Greek means to say something else. So allegorical stories, maybe you're familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis. That's an allegory. It's a story about these children and these creatures like Aslan and all that. And those things like Pilgrim's Progress, these are stories that are written. And there's a surface truth, there's a surface story but then there's a deeper meaning that that story is trying to communicate. So it's sort of an allegory, but in a sense, the differences between the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, and Abraham, and Sarah, and Hagar, and Isaac, and Ishmael, is that it's a real-life allegory. C.S. Lewis made all that stuff up. He already knew the picture, and then he made up another way to tell the story. But this one, God takes this true story about these real people— And Paul, motivated by the Spirit, says, yeah, it was about Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and all that, but there was a deeper thing going on. God was communicating something else for all history. He's telling us something about relationship with him. And now he's going to explain the allegory or the symbolism. He says, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, For this, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. Now stop there, the end of verse 25, because I don't want to bite off more than we can chew. He says, this thing's an allegory, and it's an allegory of two covenants. The old covenant says, if you do, if you do, 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 if you do, then I will bless. Only if you do, then I'll bless. And it's connected to Mount Sinai, And you guys remember Mount Sinai and the scene there where the law is given, the Ten Commandments, and there's lightning, there's thunder, there's darkness. It's an ominous scene that people say, we don't want to come too close to the mountain. You talk to God because it's a whole scary thing. The old covenant is dependent on my ability to perform. And all through the Old Testament, we read the Old Testament, you go, this must be a different God. No, it's a different covenant. And we ought to be really thankful We don't live under it because I'm just not consistent enough. I might be able to string together a couple of good activities or maybe even a couple of good days, but how often can I really keep up the appearance? How long can I pedal, pedal, pedal or work, work, work on the treadmill of religious works and keep it up without failing? And that's what religion creates. Religion creates this series of rules that now everybody's obligated to keep because if you don't keep them, God becomes an angry, punishing God. 
And that's what we see through the Old Testament. The Jews continue to fail. They have grace. They have the sacrificial system. But the old covenant was, if you do, and they said, we'll keep the law, we'll keep the law. And God said, okay, give it your best. And he already planned for their failure because the whole sacrificial system is the plan for their failure. God knew they would fail. But he said, well, okay, if you think you can do it, let's give it a try. So all through the Old Testament, they fail. And it should be preparing them, and it could have been preparing them for the eager reception of Christ. Because at some point you just lay it down and you go, you know what, who am I fooling anyway? That's what Paul did. Who am I really kidding? I show up for church, I wear the right clothes, I carry the right Bible, I look the part. And yet when I go home, I'm a completely different person. Or I can keep up appearances while I'm around certain people, but I know I'm faking it. I know that it's just religious routines. It's not really getting down to the deeper things of love and mercy and justice and grace and kindness and all those things that are lacking that law doesn't cover, that law can't cover. So these things are the two covenants. The one, the old covenant, it's connected with Mount Sinai. This is hard for people that love law. That's what Paul is talking to. You who desire to be under the law. Do you know anybody connected to the church that loves law? I mean, they are all about, it's all about the Ten Commandments. They got them memorized. They got them written on the wall, got them at home, got them for the kids. You're going to memorize these. Look, the Ten Commandments are of God for sure. But the problem with them is not that the commandments are wrong. The problem is I'm just not fit to keep them. That's the problem is not on God's end. The problem is on my end. And Paul says that Mount Sinai gives birth to bondage. If you are all about keeping the commandments of God, then you are going to live your life in bondage to a set of rules. Here's what I realized the other day with my granddaughter. I mean, you guys know, I keep referring to her because she's just the cutest thing ever. And I just love spending time with her. And she teaches me a lot. I mean, I've learned more about the Bible and my relationship with God in the last two years by watching and playing and interacting with a toddler again. Because my brain was fried when my kids were young. I have no recollection. I think I was just in some kind of hysteria zone when they were little because I don't remember a thing. So now I'm actually paying attention to my granddaughter. And what I realized is that it really doesn't matter what I tell her. She's imitating what I do. That's really the key. She's imitating me. She's following me. I can tell her all day long, don't do this and don't do that. Parents, you know how it is. We tell our kids, well, you can't watch that. I mean, I'm going to watch that, but you shouldn't watch that. They're not going to do what you say. They're going to do what you do. They're going to say, well, mom and dad do it. Why can't I? They don't understand that they're only 12 and you've been around a little longer and you can handle it. They don't get that. The two-year-old doesn't understand why I can do certain things and she can't. You know, when she's watching me do it, it's very hard to hold her responsible because I know she's an imitator. So I realized that about my relationship with God, I can have all these rules, but at the end of the day, the rules don't cover every aspect of my life. And what I am meant to do is I'm meant to keep my eyes not on a stringent, very narrow, very cold set of rules. What I'm meant to do is have my eyes on Christ. And that's how I live. And I talk to him about how he lives and I watch what he does and I watch how he interacts. These two covenants, one is Mount Sinai, gives birth to bondage, to slavery. 
which is Hagar. If you're born from a slave woman, you're born into slavery. It's Mount Sinai, it's in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. So Paul, these Judaizers no doubt linked themselves to Jerusalem and to the apostles from Jerusalem and to the religious system in Jerusalem. That's where they've come from most likely. So they think Jerusalem is the bomb. That's the place where everything stems from. And Paul says, oh yeah, you want to talk about Jerusalem? That Jerusalem, which now is 50 AD, roughly when Paul writes this to the Galatians, he says that Jerusalem is in bondage. That's the Jerusalem that Jesus looked at and said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks and you would not. And because you would not, what you see is going to end up in destruction. And 20 years from the time that Paul writes this, Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans. And at the time that Paul writes, Jerusalem is in bondage to the Romans. It's in bondage even to sin and religious corruption. This is an excerpt from a conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees. This is John chapter 8. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So the bondage they were experiencing in Jerusalem, just because they had religion, doesn't mean they were free. Religion just covers up the fact that you sin a bunch. So they were still in bondage to sin. Even though they connected themselves nationally, genetically to Abraham, They were still in bondage to sin was still controlling their lives. To this day, when we go to Israel, you see the Orthodox Jews and they got to wear the fuzzy hat. The kids have the long curls growing and there's so many rules. They're all wearing black coats because that's what the Jews in the thirties wore in Russian persecution. And I mean, it's this whole system that they are slaves to and they are afraid not to do these things. Because if they don't do them, it's going to bring down some kind of punishment from God. And he says, verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. What a great Mother's Day passage, isn't it? So he contrasts the two ladies, the two moms, Sarah and Hagar, slavery versus being free. The two mountains, Mount Sinai and Jerusalem, that is connected to that, the Jerusalem, which now is and is enslaved with her children. And he contrasts that with the Jerusalem that's above, the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly reality, which is the mother, Paul says, of all of us, those of us that are connected to God through faith. We've been born from above. And that's your identity. There's so much in the Bible about who you really are. Now, you guys know that are sitting here how much I love to travel. I love to travel. I love experiencing different cultures. My last trip to Hong Kong was just so cool. Being there and all the skyscrapers and the restaurants, 
I just thought it was the neatest thing. I couldn't understand the language to save my life. One word, if I was lucky, could I understand. I learned how to say like milk tea in Cantonese. And that was about it. I couldn't understand anything else. It's such a foreign language. So even though I'm in Hong Kong, I know that it's not my home. I don't speak the language. I don't know the culture. I don't fit in necessarily. I'm from America. This is my home. I understand it here. I live here. It's not just America, but I'm from the South. That means I know how to wave to you with my hands in the steering wheel. I can still do one of those. That's the South. We can still be hospitable even while we're driving the car. So there's a culture even of the South. So culture and identity really go hand in hand. And Paul says, for those of us that are connected to Sarah, connected to faith, connected to the miraculous birth, that the mother of us all, we've all been born from above the heavenly Jerusalem. Our citizenship is not on earth. So even past Hong Kong, even past the United States of America, even past Virginia and Southern hospitality, I'm going to say this, and maybe some will disagree, but I think there's a difference between being patriotic, which I think is a good thing, versus patriotism, which is the worship of the United States of America. And as Christians, remember your citizenship. You live here, but it's temporary. So we're called to be good citizens of the United States of America. America should be a better place because we exist here, because the church exists here. We are above all people in America. Christians should be the best citizens, loving our neighbor, helping people out. But the only reason we're good citizens of America is because we're first and foremost citizens of heaven. And it's the heavenly citizenship. It's the culture of heaven that my mind is on things above that makes me useful here in America. That makes me useful in my marriage. It's because I have that culture. The Jerusalem above is free and is the mother of us all. You can read Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that. Philippians chapter three talks about citizenship in heaven. The Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. And then he goes to Isaiah 54. Now this is so cool. Watch what happens. For it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now, Isaiah 54, Isaiah writing about the Jews in exile in Babylon, and he says to them, their exile is like a barren woman who's experiencing the shame of barrenness. Their exile has brought on them shame. And he's telling them, Isaiah is telling them to rejoice because they're going to come back and they're going to be reestablished. But there's a deeper meaning here. Remember, Isaiah 54 follows the well-known passage in Isaiah 53. Some of us went through the discipleship course head to heart and spent a lot of time in Isaiah 53 looking at the love of the Father and the Father's view of the cross that comes right out of chapter 53 of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, we learn about this suffering servant, that Jesus is this suffering servant that he suffers for our iniquity. He takes our sicknesses on him. He experiences what we should experience, not because he was guilty, but he takes on our guilt on himself. And it pleases the father to bruise him, to crush him. And the whole purpose of that in Isaiah 53, coming to the end, is because he will bring forth many 
offspring. So this servant of Isaiah 53 is going to actually have a whole lot of children. And then we go into chapter four and Paul uses it sort of to describe Sarah and to describe us. He says, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. How is a woman who can't have children, how's she going to rejoice? How's she going to break forth and shout if she's not in labor? How is the desolate going to have many more children than she has a husband? I mean, how can someone who's desolate have more kids? It's a miracle. There's no human way. So Paul grabs that out of Isaiah and says, look, he's talking about Sarah and the spiritual birth being born from above that happens through Christ. Verse 28, he says, now we, brethren, he explains it. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. That's how I was born again. I was born again because God made me a promise. He promised me that if I would believe in him, I would be saved. And I'm saved by having a new birth, not by keeping rules. It all goes back to birth. I'm not saved by keeping all the rules. I'm saved by being born again. Being born again, becoming an heir of God, being adopted into his family, being a child of the same promise. Here's a barren woman, couldn't bear kids. God said, I'm going to make you a mother of many. And that many goes from her own son, Isaac, on to Jacob, to the 12 tribes of Israel, and on to Judah, who ultimately gives birth to Christ, who gives birth to many, 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 many children. So Paul is just following this string out. And he says, look, we, we all, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, we are all children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. So it goes back to Genesis 21 in just a second here. And he says, look, when Isaac, when he was weaned, Abraham threw a party for him. Isaac, we're going to have a party for you. Weaned, what, three, four years old, I think, in that culture. Says, let's have a party. So now Ishmael is about 17, and he's beaten up on the kid. And the Bible says that he mocked him. He's persecuting his younger brother. How many of you have ever experienced that? You got younger brothers? Anybody got younger brothers? Did you ever beat up on him? (laughs) How many of you had older brothers that beat up on you? I was the oldest in my family, and my younger brother beat up on me. That's another story. So the 17-year-old is mocking and teasing the three-year-old. And he says, nothing's different. The older, the one of the flesh, persecutes the one of the spirit. And that's what Paul's experiencing. Religious people, the legalists, are mocking and teasing the ones that are truly spiritual. That's the same thing today. We go up on the Temple Mount when we go to Israel. And remember, we talked about Ishmael. God blessed Ishmael, because he was a child of Abraham, God said, I'm going to also make you great. And Islam, Muhammad, according to the Quran, traced back to Ishmael, the Arabians. Uh, Ishmael gave rise to, as an ancestor, many of the great Arab nations, and ultimately Muhammad, and ultimately Islam. And today, when you go up on the Temple Mount, it's really sad in a way, because first you pass the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is there, And then you turn the corner, you look up the steps, and there's the Dome of the Rock Mosque, the big golden dome, and around it in Arabic, you can't read it because it's in Arabic, but it says, God has no son. 
So even today, the persecution of Isaac by Ishmael, in one sense, in a secondary sense, the persecution of those that believe by faith and walk by faith, the persecution by those that are legalists. Has that ever happened to you? Somebody who walks in this legalistic kind of religion comes down on you because you go to church on Sunday or because you don't keep the food laws or because you don't keep this festival, because you don't keep Torah, because you don't keep these rules. And here's the sad thing. He says, but as he was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Paul's experiencing that. We experience that. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? And it always comes back to the word of God, doesn't it? Doesn't matter what that person thinks or what that person says. The question is not what my denomination says, what my church background says. The question is what does scripture say? And Paul quotes Genesis 21, cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not inherit, shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Law and works is entirely mutually exclusive from faith and a spirit-filled life. You can't have them both. They cannot coexist. You cannot have law and grace. As a matter of fact, John chapter one, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I've met people that, well, they want Jesus, but they also want to keep all the rules and keep all the festivals and do all the things that keep Torah, so to speak. But remember before we said, Ishmael, what religious ritual did he go through? He went through circumcision. And they're putting all this emphasis on being circumcised. And Paul says, you want to talk about that? You want to talk about the bondwoman and her son? The Bible says, cast out the bondwoman and her circumcised son. Cast them out. Get rid of them. Legalism, law-based relationship with God. You can't play with that. You can't have your cake and eat it too. The Bible says, get rid of it altogether. And Paul's going to go on to say, if you try to keep the law, if you try to keep the religious rules as a Christian, it says actually you've fallen from grace. You can't experience God's grace if you're still working hard to produce salvation for yourself by your own effort. I mean, that's really the promise is you trust me, I'll save you. My son took all your sins. You can stop working. You can stop trying. You can stop worrying and being obligated and living under the slavery of religious obligation because you're my son, because you're my daughter. And the son is an heir. And that's what Paul's already said. The son dwells in the house forever. The slave, slaves come and go, but the son dwells in the house forever. And this is huge. Cast out, get rid of, send packing. And that's what happens in Genesis. They send Hagar out. Abraham's kind of worried about this. Like, oh, you know, Sarah's upset. This son, Ishmael, is teasing my son. You know, Hagar's son teasing my son. He's got to go. And Abraham's like, uh, God, what do I do? And God says, listen, this is worth everything for Mother's Day. God says, Abraham, listen to your wife. Listen to your wife. Now, before, with the whole Hagar thing in the first place, it was, oh, Abraham, you shouldn't have listened to your wife. But now, when she says, we got to get rid of Hagar, God says, Abraham, your wife is right. The slave woman has to go. 
she can't inherit. Her son can't inherit. The flesh and the spirit will always be at war. That's what Galatians 5 is about. The flesh and the spirit, even in your life right now, the flesh and the spirit are at war. That same war, Isaac and Ishmael, exists within your heart. And you've got to send the flesh packing. You got to send this feeling of obligation packing. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. They cannot co-inherit. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And man, it's the people, the legalist will say, look at all I'm doing. Like, I can't believe all that I've done, all the rules I've kept, all the, the religious things I do. God says, I don't see any of them. Anything that's done in the flesh, anything that's done based on religious routine, apart from faith, God says, I don't even recognize it. Remember when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? He says, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son. Time out, God. Wait a second. What about Ishmael? Doesn't he count? God says, when it comes to inheritance, when it comes to being an heir of the kingdom, no, he doesn't count. It's a shame. It's so sad. It's so sad that so many people are working so hard and keeping so many rules. I feel that way when we go to Israel, when we see the Jews today. They're keeping so many rules. They're working so hard to keep the letter of the law. And God says, I don't even recognize it. Doesn't even count. Doesn't produce anything for you. So all I can say this Mother's Day, I know the hope of moms is nothing more than to see their kids get saved. So maybe some moms are watching. Maybe you said, come to church with me. That's what I want. But maybe today you said, watch church with me. And I can tell every child out there that the heart of your mother is that you would know Christ as your savior. And I hope that you can see that being a Christian, whatever impression you've had that I've got to do all these things, that being a Christian is just about being born again. You've got to be born from above. And if you're born again, you're a child of God and you're part of his family. And God takes care of the rest. Amen? Amen.